Hello, sci-fi fans. This is Edward James Olmos, better known as Admiral Adama, and you're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. Welcome, and don't forget, this is the best podcast on the internet. So say we all. This is a Sci-Fi Rewind with Miles P. McLaughlin and Scott Herzog. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Rewind. This is episode 22, and uh, I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. And hello, I'm Miles P. McLaughlin. And tonight, we have arguably the men with probably some of the best pipes for audio and radio with us tonight. That is true. That is is true. So uh, one of those is Wayne Henderson from the uh, Fringe Casting Podcast, Lost Casting Podcast, and 10,000 other podcasts. Wayne Henderson, thank you so much for coming and joining with us. Scott Miles, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here. We've been waiting for this one for a while. Yeah, yeah. We've been uh, trying to coordinate schedules and figuring out, you know, are the Packers going to really make it to the Super Bowl or not? And they didn't. Next year. Yeah, next year. There's always next year, right? Um, and we also have with us Mr. Jim Arrowood, a.k.a. Kalos on the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. How are you doing, Jim? Doing real well. Well, awesome. Well, it's good to have you on again. And you were on, uh, which rewind did you do with us? Was that Galaxy Quest? That wasn't Galaxy Quest. No. No, I did Total Recall with you. T- total Recall, that's right. So and we just bring you on for all the Philip K. Dick stuff that we do, right? <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So tonight... Uh, before we get into our discussion of Blade Runner, which is really, this has been one that's been on our docket to do for some time, Miles, and we just never did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been kind of one of those iconic cult classics that we knew that we had to do and just oh, kind sure. of pushed off doing because there were other ones we wanted to do. Um, but the next one that we're planning to do after this is Fifth Element, uh, another kind of classic, uh, Bruce Willis classic, but many other people, any, many other notables in that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, one of Mila Jovich's earlier uh, roles, if not first role. Yeah, the only one, and the, the one that we kind of, when we go to cons, we see people try to dress up like her in that outfit. Right, a lot, lot of young ladies... Uh, Try to well. They 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 dress up as as Lilo. Yeah. Yeah. Whether she's successful, whether it's successful or not, it's a whole different issue. We won't go into that. <coughs> but but uh, yeah, we see a few of those there. Yeah, we do, and uh, it is one of her iconic roles, at least early on. And now, of course, she's associated quite closely with the Resident Evil franchise. Right. And uh, very cool by that. But tonight, tonight we are talking all things 
Blade Runner. And so let's ju- let's just jump right into it. Mm-hmm. Now, <coughs> Miles, you had wa- had you watched Blade Runner prior to watching it this time in this rewind? I have, but it had been a long time. Um, saw it with some friends, um, probably about fifteen or so years ago, and then uh, um, I hadn't seen it since until we did this rewind. So I so I watched it this past Friday. And what were some of your uh, first impressions coming back to this movie that's been kind of hailed as a cult classic. Well, on on, on the um, on the negative side, I, when I watched it the first time, I really had to pay attention because the pacing was very slow. I don't think this movie with 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 a modern audience would would do as well um, because of the pacing. So you really have to pay attention. Um, and I'll, I'll be curious what Wayne and Jim think about is is, is the pacing a uh, is is it a plus or, or a minus for the movie? But um, I just remember that I, I thought the movie kind of moved kind of slow when I first saw it. I mean, I liked it, but it just you had to you know you kind of had to put your brain um, you had you had to really set it to ten to, um, uh, to to follow what was going on, or you might right. miss something. Right, so you need a shot of cortexafan in there to help you process the movie. Is that what you're saying? It wouldn't have hurt, no. <laughs> well, you know, uh, all we need is J.J. Abrams to take on this movie yet. Oh, my. And then we'll be good. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid if he does that. But uh, <laughs> but at the same time, though, when I saw it, I was it was, it was still it was still a fun nostalgic trip because seeing the, the, the banner ads on the city, just seeing um, ads for Atari and um, – uh, Coca Cola, the, the 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 one Asian girl, it's kind of an iconic picture for, for this movie. Just seeing her and so many of the banner ads, um, so that that was kind of a fun little uh, trip down memory lane. Seeing what what people thought would still be um, in business, and 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 uh, I mean, Atari was really hot back in the early eighties. It's still available. It's still it's still in existence now. It's just it's it's just it's just one it's one different one, Atari than it was back then. It, it's one little fish among many now, right now, yeah, right now. Yeah, yeah. Jim, how about you? You sat down. Uh, uh, if I got this right, you had watched the final. Was, it, did, was the final cut the uh, the version that you watched? Yes, the final cut. And, and and you watched it what about three times? I guess. Yes, I I viewed it three, three times. Okay, so in watching it these most recent times, uh, what stuck out to you, uh, or maybe what kind of hit you? Maybe that you didn't maybe maybe didn't hit you as much the other times that you watched it. Well, I'll tell you what. The first first time I saw this film, I ran it at my theater. Uh, I missed the first few minutes of it, so I knew nothing about Philip K. Dick. I knew nothing about the story. I walked in about ten minutes into the film. And I hated it. I didn't enjoy it at all uh, because I didn't know what was going on. Uh, oh, this last time when I had a chance to watch it, I actually got to, I had read the book um, and everything, and I understood what was going on. And I really, really enjoyed it a lot more when I knew what was happening. <laughs> That's always helpful, isn't it? <laughs> now, now, Jim, the theatrical release, that, that had the narration during the movie, though, right? My my correct there? Oh gosh, you're talking you're talking a long time ago. I don't remember. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, at least uh, at least uh, did did you make it through the whole movie the first time you saw it, even though you didn't really like it? 
Uh, not really. I, I kind of got bored with it, and, and partially because of uh, what Miles mentioned was the pacing. It just seemed awful slow. Yeah. Uh, I was a lot younger then, and I didn't appreciate uh, that kind of movie as much as I do now. Right, 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 right. Well, at least at least you are um, at least you gave it a better chance than William Gibson did, who wrote Neuromancer. He saw the first twenty minutes of the movie and walked out because it resembled the book he was working on too closely, and it oh. kind of frustrated him. So um, that was when he initially saw the the viewing of it. Wayne, uh, we know uh, if you, if if you listen to any of Wayne's podcasts, you know that he is a Philip K. Dick fanatic. Uh, <laughs> one of the reasons he's here on the show with us tonight. Um, first of all. Which version of the movie did you watch to kind of prepare for the show here? And uh, and what was it like going back to a movie that uh, a man that you kind of loved his work and going back to this movie? Well, in preparation uh, for this Total Recall special, I watched the director's cut, which uh, was the one where he had stripped out the narration by Harrison Ford and changed the ending just a little bit. Uh, people talk about the ending being so different. It's really not all that different. There's just one, like, 45 seconds uh, different. So that's the one I watched. But I also, I have the deluxe box set that I had gotten for uh, Christmas a number of years ago. So I also watched the ending of the final cut and the theatrical release. And I really enjoyed watching it all again. Because when I first saw Blade Runner, I saw it in the theaters uh, back when it first came out. And my first initial thought then, other than thinking it was really cool, really cutting edge, my first thought when leaving the theater was, was this really based on Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep? Because <laughs> <laughs> there was so much missing. <laughs> right. But watching it again, uh, after the fact, you know, a lot of the visuals and the sound hold up really well. Not all of them, but... Uh, like Miles touched on at the beginning, some of the classic uh, shout-outs, like uh, one of the logos that was in there quite prominently was TDK. I remember having all those TDK cassettes and videos and things. Oh, yeah, me too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, we've been talking just a little bit and throwing around the fact that there are various versions of this movie and maybe just kind of set things out and just uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about what versions we viewed of the movie, even though we've kind of hinted at that. Um, Kevin Batchelder, who had, who had initially been a part of the rewind process we've done, was jokingly said there are 27 different versions of Blade Runner. Um, he might have meant just seven and typed the two in there, unless he was just joking. Um, but there are, uh, I think there are seven official versions of Blade Runner out there and with a potential eighth one and uh the most well-known are the international cut the director's cut and the final cut um so here are the various versions just a little bit information about each one just to kind of set a premise here we have the original work print version in 1982 was 113 minutes and it was shown to an audience test previews in denver and dallas in march of 82 it was also seen in 1991 in los angeles and san francisco as a director's cut Without the approval of director Ridley Scott, negative responses to the test previews led to the modifications resulting in the U.S. theatrical version. Um, then uh, the second version was the San Diego sneak preview, shown only once, May 1982, which was almost identical to the U.S. theatrical version with three extra scenes. Um, and then there was the U.S. theatrical version in 1982, which is 116 minutes, known as the original version or domestic cut. 
This version was released on Betamax and VHS in 1983. This version remained unreleased on DVD until 2007 when it was released as part of the five-disc Ultimate Edition. Then there was the International Cut, 1982, which had 117 minutes of footage, also known as a Criterion Edition or uncut version, included more violent action scenes in the U.S. theatrical version, although identically unavailable in the U.S. and distributed in Europe and Asia via theatrical and local Warner home video Laserdisc releases. It was later released on VHS, a Criterion Collection Laserdisc in North America, and re-released in 92 as a 10th anniversary edition. And then uh, the uh, fifth version (coughs) was the U.S. broadcast version, 114 minutes, released in 1986, was a U.S. theatrical version edited by CBS to tone down the violence, profanity, and nudity to meet broadcasting restrictions. And six, the Ridley Scott-approved Director's Cut 1992, 116 minutes, prompted by the unauthorized 1990-91 work print theatrical release and made available on VHS and Laserdisc in 93 and on DVD. In 97, significant changes from the theatrical version include removal of Deckert's voiceover, insertion of a unicorn sequence, and the removal of the epilogue scene showing Rachel and Deckard driving through the green, mountainous landscapes. Ridley did provide extensive notes in consultation to Warner Brothers, although the film preservationist Michael Eric was put in charge of creating the director's cut. And seven, Ridley Scott's final cut. 117 Minutes are the 25th anniversary edition released by Warner Brothers theatrically on October 5th, 2007, and subsequently released on DH- DVD, HTDVD, and Blu-ray on December 2007. <clears throat> this is the only version over which Ridley Scott had complete artistic control as the director's cut was rushed and he was not directly in charge. In conjunction with the final cut, an extensive documentary and other materials were produced for the home video releases, culminating in a five-disc Ultimate Collector's Edition. In addition, um, in addition, the 2007, this is the eighth one, in, in addition, the 2007 documentary Dangerous Days, The Making of Blade Runner, includes references to a nearly four-hour-long early cut that was only shown to studio personnel. So those are the eight versions of it. <laughs> Four hours, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's like Lord of the Rings stat. <laughs> so, so the question is, um, of these, Wayne, how many of these versions do you own? Most of the ones that you mentioned. I have the deluxe super five-disc collector's edition in a plastic Deckard uh, Blade Runner case with a unicorn and a flying car and artwork and all these. It's quite a collection to own. It uh, it doesn't include some of those test prints other than the work print version that you mentioned. And it's they're all just wonderful. <laughs> and you watched them all? In my opinion. Uh, not often. But there's so many. The bonus <coughs> features. I mean, if Fringe puts out bonus features at this level, there's bonus features that will keep you entertained for a week. Oh, nice, nice. Hmm. And Jim, am I correct that... Other than the theatrical release that you saw in your theater and the final cut, are these the only two versions that you've seen? Yes, they are. Yeah, very good. And I think that all I all I've ever saw and what all I ever saw was the fi- was the uh, the final cut version of it. So yeah, I saw one. Whatever I saw it one in ninety six. I think it was. I don't recall the. Um, the uh, the narration in it, so it must be the director's cut. And the one I just saw recently was the um, the final cut. 
Okay, yeah. So the director's cut, that would have made sense because that came out in 92. Okay. So made sense that you would have seen that. And director final cut when it came out to 2007. So very cool. Just um, a few other steps before we get into the meats and bones of this. This movie, when it came out, had a domestic lifetime gross of $32 million, so not very high grossing. I couldn't find a production budget on it, uh, so I'm not sure how it did as far as making money or losing money. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just kind of... Uh, $28 million. $28 million. Is that what it cost to make it? Yes, that was their budget. Okay. so it, That's it made, a lot of money for back in the early it, 80s. It made a little bit of money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's come out in a gazillion different collections as well, as we kind of mentioned before. But, <clears throat> so just uh, anything else uh, as far as the production stats you guys have that I don't? No. Okay, yeah, I, I don't have anything else other than that. All right, so where do we want to start with uh, discussing and breaking down the nuts and bolts of this movie? We do Wherever you want. All right, let's, 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 let's jump right in it. Um, so we did kind of mention the, 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 since we kind of mentioned product placement, let's start there. So we kind of hinted at it a couple different uh, ways. Um, most notably, obviously, when you start as a Coca-Cola placement, um, there's been something that has become known as the Blade Runner curse. <laughs> yeah, have any of you ever heard that? I, no. I heard of it today when I was doing some reading on it. Yeah, so the Blade Runner curse. And uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, Blade Runner curse is just that any any company that has been in the Blade Runner movie has either gone out of business or is doing very poorly or is virtually non-existent, with the exception of Coca-Cola. So, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, Yeah, you think of the companies that, I mean, I've never seen a Pan Am ad in one of their... <laughs> yeah. They're not existing anymore. They, they, they haven't existed long for a long time. The only time they existed in is that, that you know very short-lived series that was on TV, right? Right. When there was their RCA, which was one of the time the leading leading consumer in consumer electronics is now virtually non-existent. Is RCA even around? That's a good question, Wayne. Do you know? I do not know. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, they they call them RCA jacks. I mean, yeah, they still do. They still references to them. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, they say it was bought out by one-time parent GE in 85 and dismantled. So I guess that answers that. Okay. Um, Atari, of course, once dominated home video, is now you know just a meager drop in the bucket with many of the home video uh, game, the, video games. Video games, yeah. Yeah. Um, Cousinart uh, also went bankrupt in 89, although it lives under new ownership. The Bell system, Monopoly, was broken up the same year. And um, Pan Am, as we mentioned, or the other references. But, you know, we mentioned when we watched, uh, I think, um, I don't know if there's something about Phil K. Dick movies, but uh, Jim, when we had, uh, when we reround Total Recall, we mentioned how prominent the product placement was in that movie as well. Um, is there something about this era of movies and <clears throat> that seems to warrant um, obvious product placement? I don't know, uh, Jim. What do you think about that? Um, I know that there was there was quite a bit of it going on. I recall a movie, uh, a Murphy movie. I can't remember what the title is, but the entire movie comes to a dead stop. Pepsi can does a dance for about six minutes on the screen. Uh, there was a lot of that going on. 
Uh, it was really also quite noticeable that when there was a product on there, uh, when the camera angle would change, uh, the uh, can or the container would magically rotate so that the it was in view of the camera. So, yeah, there was quite a bit of that. Yeah, I'm very intentionally highlighted. I think today, today they try to be a little bit more subtle with it. I know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not as in your face as, as, as it was probably back in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, Wayne, any thoughts on this? I, I agree with all of you guys, but I will say that even though in some of Philip K. Dick's novels and short stories, there may not be actual product names mentioned that often, some of the style of his writing shows that I don't think he would have had a problem with it in these movies because that's just how he saw society, you know, always just bashing us over the head with product placement, whether out in the real world or in movies or in the future, products are going to be coming after us for all time. Mm. <clears throat> now, um, we mentioned earlier, we mentioned just in passing as we were doing kind of introductory thoughts to this uh, movie that this movie today for an audience to get into it functions uh very moves at a very slow pacing um is that a um i, I mean obviously we, we we watched it because we kind of have an affinity for sci-fi and then also have a love for the the, the genre and blade runner is kind of one of these iconic films uh how does this movie hold up pacing wise for a modern audience uh when i go to you I think that it holds up fairly well. I'm, my kids themselves thought it was kind of slow. But when I rewatched it, it was not as slow as I remember it being. And at the risk of offending somebody, and I hope I don't, but go ahead and watch 2001 A Space Odyssey and the first Star Trek motion picture. And this thing will seem like an action-packed <laughs> Very true. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, so it de- it definitely it definitely is not the slowest movie out there. That's no. true. Um, and uh, Jim, Jim, your thoughts on this? I know you mentioned it was extremely slow when you saw it. Going back, did it seem as slow as you remember it when you saw it first in theaters? Well, I think that's because I can understand it. I have to agree with Wayne because uh, the pacing the pacing is kind of slow, but I think it goes along with the style. <laughs> film um it uh oh how can i put this it seems slow until end credits come up where did all this time go i mean where you know it goes by pretty quick yeah i would i would tend to agree with that miles any thoughts on this yeah i mean i i think if they were making this movie today i think they would try to increase the pacing i don't for for a younger audience, I, I think a, I mean I, I I think attention spans are definitely shorter now than they were years ago. Um, and what Wayne is right, I mean, two thousand one and and Star Trek motion picture definitely definitely are slower than this. Um, however, I'm thinking just the way that they make movies now, the way they make, the way they make TV now. Um, you know, for for us, I think we we can you know we can handle the slow. I mean, I think I was I mean, better. I was better with it now. Day. But um, um, 
than when I first saw it 15 or so years ago. But uh, get 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 a 15 year old kid or somebody in their 20s and they're watching this. Uh, I don't. I, I think they'll probably you know lose focus real soon because it's not it's not going fast enough for them. Mm. I, I just the way I see t- today's audience, uh, th- at least the younger audience, I, I think would probably not um, n- not not go for it as well. It, dep- it depends on the frame of ri- the frame of mind you go into this movie with, because if you go into it looking for something that's going to be intellectually challenging or making you think, uh, then in looking at maybe more as an art, as an art a cult film, you might go into it with a little bit more tolerance for the pace than you would if you are expecting an action-packed flick and you hear about this great sci-fi movie and you go watch it. It just doesn't hold up for you. This is what I'm th- – I mean, you take a movie like, like The Matrix. <laughs> the Matrix um, – No action in that movie at all. No, of course not. <laughs> uh, but um, that that movie was both – had was heavy on action and also heavy on all the um, – Philosophy and, yeah, um, and mystic, Eastern mysticism, and um, uh, right or wrong, I think that's what kind of our audience, the younger audience, is going to go for today. Is something they ha- they they have to have the action as well as um, if they, if they want some of the deeper stuff in it. Um, so, um, so yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the other thing that I think contributes to pacing many times in a movie is the music itself. Um, or the soundtrack that kind of undergirds it. And the move, the music here is very kind of ethereal based. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and in the, the, the music was put out by, was it Vangelis? Is that right, Wayne? Yes, Vangelis. Vangelis, thank you. I wasn't sure I was pronouncing it right. Vangelis. I kept thinking Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon when I was listening to it because some of the uh, tracks had that same type of feel as to some of that music. It's not like many times when you have an action film or there's action scenes, you have some really fast paced music. Uh, Not so in this one. It's Mm -hmm. kind of when you're they're flying the ship and they're, you know, going through the city of this beautiful music playing out and, you know, these these, you know, smokestacks exploding in the distance and, Mm -hmm. you know. Very long opening sequence for that. And then even throughout the movie of this music just kind of undergirding it. It's very kind of pensive. Right. Yeah. Uh, Jim, we really need to get your thoughts. I mean, you're, you're, the, you're the music guru of the bunch here. Uh, tell us a little bit about your thoughts as you got into music and especially as it deals with the pacing, but maybe the overall feel of the movie. Well, you know, the, the music was, was one of the things that really stood out to me. Vangelis did an awesome job of the of bringing out the film noir feel of this entire film. Um, it, you know, you could have done anything else with the movie, but if you did, if you changed the music, it would have changed the entire feel of everything. And I think that's that was probably one of the most impressive things that happened with uh, Blade Runner. Well, I did like what uh, Jim said. I mean, it, this is a film noir. 
I mean, it's futuristic, but at the same time, it definitely kind of has a, I don't know, old world feel to to some things. I mean, um, I mean, you have something as mundane as uh, Deckert eating sushi and noodles uh, at some sort of outdoor Chinese restaurant cafe. Nothing, you know, no, nothing looks futuristic there. I mean, we'll still we'll, we'll see stuff eventually, but it almost there there is. Still, even though it takes place in the future, there, there there's definitely an old world feel to it. Mm, definitely. Well, let's move into some of the uh, the scenes that really stuck out to us in this movie that we really that really uh, either spoke to us or maybe were some of our favorite scenes. And and um, Jim, can we pick your brain to maybe pull out a, a, a scene or two that really stuck out to you that you really uh, that you really liked? That's okay. The the one the one that I like. The scene that, that I liked the best in the entire film was when uh, Deckard was uh, issuing the uh, Voight Comp test to Rachel. It's too bright in here. mind if I smoke? It won't affect the test. All right, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Just relax and answer them as simply as you can. It's your birthday. Someone gives you a calfskin wallet. I wouldn't accept it. Also, I'd report the person who gave it to me to the police. You've got a little boy. He shows you his butterfly collection, plus the killing jar. I take him to the doctor. You're watching television. Suddenly you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm. I'd kill it. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard? Just answer the questions, please. You show it to your husband. He likes it so much, he hangs it on your bedroom wall. I wouldn't let him. Why not? I should be enough for him. One more question. You're watching a stage play. A banquet is in progress. The guests are enjoying an appetizer of raw oysters. The entree consists of boiled dog. Would you step out for a few moments, Rachel?
Thank you. Uh, that was just classic uh, film noir, uh, cop and femme fatale, the whole thing. It was just awesome. Mm. And I love the uh, fact that you used to avoid comp tests because that is a real test that they actually use. Uh, not for replicants, of course, but they, <laughs> but they use it. Um, or as an authentic test was developed. I yeah. forget the story behind it. But, but yeah. Uh, Wayne, how about you? Uh, your favorite scene for you in the movie as you watched it again? Well, I was going to say the same scene that Jim said. <laughs> <laughs> and oh. it is one of the scenes in the movie that is directly, almost word for word, taken from Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? That, everything Jim said so well, perfect scene. And I also really enjoyed the scenes at the very end, the mega fight uh, inside the dilapidated buildings and up on the roof, uh, just because it just seemed so well done. And film noir, this so many scenes and aspects of this movie just really get me for different reasons. Mm. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Uh, and that, th- those were some good scenes. Miles, for you, how about for you? Uh, give me a uh, scene that stuck out to you. When, when, um, when uh, Harrison Ford's character and or James Olive's character is flying around in the uh, flying car. And that's one thing, the cool thing is we have is flying cars. Um, Finally. Yes. <laughs> um, but they fly to... Um, from basically to Terrell's um, headquarters. Brian, huh? The charmer's name was Gaff. I'd seen him around. Bryant must have upped him to the Blade Runner unit. That gibberish he talked was city speak, gutter talk, a mishmash of Japanese, Spanish, German, what have you. I didn't really need a translator. I knew the lingo every good cop did. But I wasn't going to make it easier for him. And it's it's it, it, I think it still holds up. It's it's beautiful pyramid, but it's a modern construction. I mean, it's done as like you know, like a Mayan pyramid almost, but it's but it's definitely modern. Uh, just a very beautiful, beautiful scene there. Just them flying towards it. Yeah. Um, so um, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, and is that uh, is that a real build, building in California, Wayne? I don't think so. It looks a little computer animated or backdrop painting, but I'm not sure. Yeah. 
<clears throat> that's not that's not the one they refer to as the Bradbury Building, is it? I think I think that might be. Well, I thought that's been used in other. They, that's been used as a set in either. Um, I, I don't think that's a real building. I'm thinking of not the Pyramid Building. The other there's another building that must have been in that's referred to as a Bradbury Building that's being used that's been used in a lot of other shows because they wouldn't do that if it wasn't a real building. Mm-hmm. I would assume, but. But my favorite scene, actually not my favorite, but the grossest scene for me is a guy eating the eyeball. Longevity, incept dates. Don't know. I, I don't know such stuff. I just do eyes. Just, just, just eyes. Genetic design. Just eyes. You Nexus, huh? I design your eyes. Sure. If only you could see what I've seen with your eyes. <laughs> yeah, that's terrible. I, I felt like, I felt like I was watching Fringe for a moment when I was like um, getting into the guy eating the eyeball. I was like, hmm, yeah, charming, <laughs> <laughs> charming. Kind of an interesting tie over to Fringe. You know how on Fringe the big power corporation, massive dynamic, had their evilly sounding slogan what can't we do oh yeah um, tyrell corporation's slogan <coughs> we're more human than human oh yeah yeah very good very ominous <laughs> very ominous um <clears throat> yeah and wasn't the uh and when you get into the the mercury man of fringe and you have the, the the replicants right so maybe there is a tie-in <laughs> so uh, um Leon, how old am I? I don't know. My birthday is April 10, 2017. How long do I live? Four years. More than you. Painful living fear, isn't it? <laughs> Nothing is worse than having an itch you can never scratch. Oh, I agree. <laughs> Wake up. Time to die. The other thing that I liked uh, as far as the scene goes is a whole scene where um, I forget which one of the replicants this is, but the one that gets blown, he's about to kill Deckard and he gets his head blown through by one of the other replicants. Uh, the one that doesn't know she's a replicant. Is it Prim? It's not Prim. It's, um, I forget who it is. Chris. Chris. Chris, yeah. And yeah. Uh, Leon, I think, is the one that gets blown in the head. Yeah, yeah Leon is. Yeah, you're right. Um, and that, 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 that entire scene is, a, is just a good seeing and he says a line like do you do you want to you know do you want to live forever do you want to know what's like when it die the whole speech he gives to Deckard there is kind of telling but. <clears throat> I thought it's interesting in this movie I mean they had what it's interesting what, what they think in the future what 
like they really thought our space program would be really um, advanced. I mean, this is 2019, which is only six years away from that. But they're talking about colonies on other worlds and everything like that. And uh, I mean, our space program has been. I mean, right now it's kind of uh, it's stilted. Right now, it's it's not doing much of anything. So it, it's interesting to see where they thought technology would go there. The 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 replicants themselves. I mean, that's that's still. Um, I mean, it, it's probably not out of the realm of possibility. We could probably clone somebody now if we haven't cloned anybody yet. So the whole the whole replicant thing is it it's it's. It's it, we maybe a long way to go before we get something like that, but we're not that far. So it was just interesting looking at what what they thought it might be like. I mean, the computers they definitely look dated. The TVs look dated, but maybe that was kind of the whole film noir thing as far as the the, the look and style. So I could probably you know maybe just overlook that. But just so, but as far as human replicants, that's um, we may not be far from there than we think we are. Yeah. I, you know, I guess um, that brings up a question is, uh, does this movie, as we watch it, as we think through this movie, does this movie have a message for contemporary society? Uh, you know, be it a warning or, or a, a caution as we move forward. Is, is there a message in here that's uh, deeper than just the story that's being told? Um well, the replicants were used almost as a slave labor. So, I mean, they didn't pound the message into you, but the reason that some of these replicants have, have gone rogue and um, maybe the, part of the message is maybe we shouldn't be doing this, making, you know, making people to do, you know, the tasks we don't want, you know, or just, you know. Maybe the slave labor is wrong, and and doing making clones to do this is wrong. This is where Edward James almost would uh, would agree and say that this is really the like a sequel to uh, Battlestar Galactica, right? You know, being the, uh, the, the making the robots subservient, and then they rise up against us, and they mm-hmm. have that full out war. We don't see that quite in Blade Runner, but that's at least what they're headed. Wayne, how about the question as to where the the, the message lies for contemporary society? If there is a message. Uh, what do you think about that? I think the message is more of a question. I think it wants you to question, you know, what is real, what isn't real, what is life, and whether it's created life, you know, manufactured mechanical life, uh, is it any less precious? Hmm. That is, sounds a little bit like... Uh, the book that you were reading, Jim, about um, Edward of Planet Earth. Yes, it, it, there are a lot of similarities there. <laughs> Jim, what do you think about the uh, uh, its, its relevance as term as message for uh, contemporary society or humankind? Along with what Miles and, and Wayne have said, uh, what about the moral implications uh, uh, where we start to create uh, beings in our own image and make them independent thinkers limit their lifetime, their lifespan to four years to be sure they don't get overly sophisticated and allow things to happen as they did. Hmm. 
Yeah, there is. You know what? Yeah, there is a, certainly a moral implication to that. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe you all can help me. I mean, did they did they design that? Was that was a, that was a design that they they would expire in four years? Is that is that is that my understanding? Is that yes. correct? Okay. Yeah. That way they couldn't. They could only mature mentally to a certain degree, and maybe, maybe they thought. Well, if if we if we only if we only design them to live for four years, then they won't go rogue, and you know. But obviously, that that didn't happen. Or it could be a marketing ploy. Make sure they only last four years, so that when they come out with the newer, better, better model later on, you got to reinvest. That's true. And planned obsolescence. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. Uh, that's very that's very true. Um, the other yeah. thing that uh, might play into that a little I bit. Rel- yeah, go ahead, Jim. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the corporation, I think, with the Nexus 6 model, went. Uh, maybe they made it too good, and they began to learn too fast. Hmm. Well, now, the one replicant, that, that the one that he uses the machine on to kind of determine whether it's replicant or not, um, they're a Tyrell corporation, and they ask her like 100 and some questions, the one that doesn't realize she's a replicant. Mm-hmm. I, I read somewhere that she hasn't. She she maybe was one of the only ones that hadn't been given that four year time limit. I don't know where I heard that from. Whether it was from an interview or just something I was reading, but that seemed to be maybe some of the versions I think may have suggested that. Exactly. It, I think it was in one or two of the versions, <coughs> as well as maybe even in the Harrison Ford narrative. Um, somewhere along the line, they definitely touched on the fact that maybe because she was designed to kind of be. Tyrell's niece, uh, in essence, that she didn't have an expiration date. Right, right. And and, kind and of they said at first that she didn't even know she was a replicant. Oh, yeah. No, she didn't. Um, that brings up some other questions. Uh, uh, we're talking about these replicants and not knowing if the replicants. One of the things that's been hotly debated as we, we when we talk about Blade, Blade Runner is, is Deckard a replicant? And um, Jim, let's uh, let's talk to you here. Uh, is is Deckard a replicant? Okay. In your opinion? Uh, oh gosh, I'll tell you what. Uh, <laughs> I don't personally think he is. Now, Ridley Scott said yes, he is a replicant. I read that somewhere while I was preparing for this, but there are things that happen in the movie. That, that lead me to believe that he actually isn't. And this is kind of a question that's been led out there to ongoing debate. Um, for instance, when on the replicants, you can see the, the light shimmering in their eyes with certain angles. Uh, you never see that with Deck. You see it with Rachel. You see it with the AI Apple and, and other in the movie, but it ne- you never see it with Deckard. So I'm thinking, no, he, he is not uh, a replicant. And honestly, I hope he isn't. Mm. Well, now, uh, in the book, in the book, he is not a replicant. Is that correct? 100% correct. Yeah. No, I did not. I have not read the book, but I know that you and Jim both have. No, he's just a he's just a regular human being in the book. 
Right. Yeah. Grappling with moral issues and life and materialism and status and all that good stuff. Right. Um, now there is now just just to play devil's advocate, there is a scene um, a, where Deckard talks with, I guess, is it Rochelle, and their eyes both appear to shine in a way that is indicative of the replicants. But I'm not sure which scene that is. But uh, that was the only place in the movie that the eyes shone in the way that most of the replicants showed. Do you know what scene that is, Wayne? I can't. I didn't write it down, but I should have. No, I don't recall catching that scene. Yeah. I wouldn't want to read too much into it. There's a lot of crazy lighting in the film that might yeah. have just bounced off Harrison Ford when they were doing that or something. Yeah. He Harrison Ford also his character Deckard even in the movie he doesn't possess any of the I mean he's a good fighter and a good cop but he doesn't have any of these super strength punches and things like that that almost all the other replicants in the movie possessed. Yeah, but he is the only one that can hunt down the yeah. replicants. Right? The only one that can hunt them down and kill them and eliminate them? Mm, he's maybe the best at it, but he's not the only one. There was another one that was, I believe, made out to be superior to him at the beginning of the film, but uh, Leon killed him early on. Yeah, that was short-lived. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, done, it, done with a hole in his chest. Go ahead. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Rowena, as far as, I mean, there's nothing extraordinary about Harrison Ford's character. I mean, he's just a, he's a, he's just a cop, maybe a good cop, but not, you know, he has no, no physical super abilities or mental super abilities. He's just a you know regular guy. Yeah. No, one of the things that has been thrown out there as being that adds to the speculation about Deckard being a replicant is a whole unicorn dream sequence that he kind of has, um, uh. you know, <laughs> <laughs> Wayne, would you care to comment on this? I don't. <laughs> the unicorn is is placed in the movie in a few different places, and maybe I'm not reading enough into it, but I'm not going to say just because the adjusted scene at the end focuses a little more on a unicorn that that means Deckard's a replicant. I, I don't buy it. I don't know what Ridley Scott's agenda is, maybe to stir up controversy. Even Harrison Ford himself says that Deckard's not a replicant. So what's the deal with the unicorn? <laughs> I don't know, but I guess the deal is, the, 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 the premise for those of you that may not have caught is that uh, Deckard, um, Deckard uh, is left as unicorn the day after Rick dreams of one. So, I mean, how could he know what he was dreaming if, he, if, if this wasn't a manufactured dream like all these other thoughts are manufactured for the replicants, right? Um, and just before Deckard finds the unicorn, Gaff says to him in passing, it's too bad that she, Rochelle, won't live. Then again, who does? Um, and the unicorn can be seen briefly in a scene with J.F. Sebastian's home amongst the scattered toys to the right of the sleeping Sebastian while Priest snoops around his equipment. Unicorns also appear several times in the dream sequences of the director's cut, as is explained in the film. Rochelle's memories are known by her creators, e.g. that Rochelle has the spiders that are explained to her by Deckard in the movie. Uh, that Gaft is leaving the origami unicorns at Deckard's house implies that Gaft is aware of the content in Deckard's unicorn dream. And that's, where, uh, that's part of the argument that plays into this whole unicorn thing. Um, whether or not it holds weight or not <laughs> it may not be an interesting debate though. 
Did anybody think Edward James almost kind of looked like Huggy Bear in that, in that <laughs> outfit? I mean, um, that was some really uh, funky duds he was wearing in that movie. Oh, that man. was pimptastic. That was pimptastic, all right. Uh, I can't do anything. Just call Super Huggy Bear. Flop. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Super Fly. That's right. Um, I mean, those, those definitely had a very 70s, uh, you know, motif. Yeah. No, so we had we had to at least dress it, you know, for Kevin Batchelor's sake, whether he was a replicant or not. But uh, <laughs> so the vote. Uh, this is really quickly here. Uh, replicant or not, Wayne? No, no. And Miles, what do you think? Is he replicant or not? No. I don't know. I am. Uh, I will tell you my opinion in a second here, Jim. How about you, replicant or not? No. No replicant. And for me, uh, I'm actually going to dissent and say that I think that there is enough evidence that that sways me to the potentiality that he could be a replicant. But and especially based on the fact that Ridley Scott never read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Mm -hmm. And that's a problem for me. So, uh, yeah. So if he had read the book, he would know that Deckard's not a replicant. So let's talk about the uh, – let's talk – since we mentioned the book here, let's talk a little bit about book-movie comparisons. Miles, you did not read the book, right? No, but I'm probably going to eventually do so. No, yeah, not, so no. uh, let's get some input. Uh, so, Jim, Wayne, let's let's chat about the, the book crossover to the, the movie for you. Uh, Jim, let's start with you. What about the uh, – how did this crossover from book to movie for you um, – Hey, how did you feel about that? I think the movie captured the the essence of a great deal of what was in the book, but there was an awful lot missing. Um, I think uh, you know there was uh, the importance of of animals was kind of glossed over, waxed over in in the movie. Uh, how how it became a status symbol for for people. Um, the religion that was in the book was not included in the movie at all. Um, the machines that people used to escape were not in the, in the movie at all. It was, it was really a stripped down version. The movie was of the book. Uh, now it seems that that's a bad thing. Uh, in order to make that movie, that book into a movie correctly, it would have taken a, a long series of movies to do it. Hmm. Hmm. How about Wayne? Uh, you, you, you're, you're taking the translation from story to to movie here. Well, I'm going to agree with Jim about a hundred percent that uh, to properly make "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep" into a movie, <coughs> it would take maybe at least two, three hour long movies. But I am all for it. Uh, <laughs> um, I would say that. Uh, uh, Blade Runner only uses about 40% of the book. And like he said, the whole importance of the fact that there's hardly any living animals at all left on Earth. And so they have android animals. But if you're rich enough and you can get a live animal, that's a status symbol. And that's one of the main motivations for Deckard in the book to continue even wanting to be a bounty hunter because he doesn't really like it. And he's married in the book. Um, is he wants to earn enough money to buy a real sheep to put on the roof of his house so he can have status and, and show that he really is somebody. Mm. Um, and the, 
Jim touched on one of the devices that's called the mood organ, where this is a great device that's because Deckard's wife is basically bipolar or depressed. And you can purchase this mood organ where you can pick and choose your mood and change it at will, whether you want bliss, despair. There's even a setting for having the urge to watch television, even if nothing is on, which we kind of have today. There's just so much great stuff, underhanded humor, the mercerism, a religion background is it all weaves together in the book so well. Like it's hard to fathom just doing Blade Runner, focusing on hunting of the androids, but I do love how they did that part. Yeah. A mood organ. We need one of those. No, maybe not. But, <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a fast, you know, what, a fa- you know, there's, it, and that brings up, maybe that's another reason just to jump real quickly back to the, the Decker is, or is he a replicant or not? One of the arguments has been is that he's single in the movie. Mm-hmm. and doesn't seem to have any ties to any other family, and therefore that's other evidence of him being the replicant. Um, at least so some people say. But but jumping back, let's go back back into... Uh, so it doesn't follow... So it only really captures, as you said, 40% of, of the book. And, uh, and you're saying if they really wanted to capture the entire book, this would have to be made... This really should be a series of movies, in your opinion, Wayne? Or at least one long four-and-a-half-hour movie because there's no way to really whittle it down very far and keep the essence there. Right, right. Hmm. Well, something that I definitely want to read. You know what? I, I want to say that I have read this part of this book somewhere along the line because when you mentioned the sheep on the roof, I remember reading that scene somewhere. I just don't remember reading the book. It's been a while. And so I obviously didn't read it in prep for this, but... Um, I highly recommend reading the book or even uh, renting or buying the unabridged audiobook of it. Oh, well, maybe I could do that. Do you know who reads the audiobook? Not offhand. I think it's a different narrator for the older three and a half hour version of the audiobook. And then there's a newer version that's uh, totally unabridged. I'm not sure if it's the same guy reading it. Okay. Probably not. Typically, they update or get different voice actors for that. But exactly, it's like a ten-year time span and maybe more. Yeah. Um, so, uh, anything else regarding uh, the whole book to movie thing that we should hit on? Or are we uh, we okay there? It just kind of still frustrates me that Google Android is using this Nexus name. With as far as this month. I don't think they're paying any compensation to the estate of the late, great Philip K. Dick for using the Nexus name. You know, they have the Nexus 7 and all that stuff. Uh, I'm sure that George Lucas is being paid quite handsomely for uh, Google using the term droid. (laughs) Just had to throw that out there. Kind of a product placement type of deal. Mm. You know, I didn't even think about that. But you're right. Yeah. Um, now, um, as we move into this, as we move uh, into other parts of this, any any significant quotes that kind of stu- stuck out to you guys as you were looking at uh, things from this movie? <laughs> yes. Okay. Tons. Okay. Well, let's go. Let's just go around. Miles, why don't you go ahead? Do you have any quotes that uh, kind of stuck out to you in this movie? Um. I, I was looking for quotes because we, we used. Um, we, we, we used, for our Sci-Fi 5 5, we used um, 
quotes for Blade Runner. It, it didn't. This was only in the theatrical version where it had the narration. But what what I the one I liked a lot was uh, where this is what what, what Deckard says um, um, at the end. I don't know why he saved my life. Maybe in those last moments he loved life more than he ever had before. Not just his life, anybody's life, my life. All he wanted ever were the same answers the rest of us want. Where did I come from? Where am I going? How long have I got? All I could do is sit there and watch him die. Well, that's an excellent quote. So, I mean, when I, when I saw that, I thought that was very poignant. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Jim, how about for you? Uh, any quotes that stuck out to you as you were looking at this movie again? Um, the, the exchange between Deckard and Tyrell after um, he had interviewed uh, Rachel... You know, oh. Deckard says she's a replicant, isn't she? Not impressed, or I am impressed. How many questions does it you spot them? He says, I don't get it, Tyrell. And uh, how many questions? 20, 30 cross reference. Uh, it took more. Rachel didn't it. So, you know, uh, uh, Rachel, uh, replicant, uh, not to mention a well built lady on top of that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Wayne, you said uh, you sounded like you had some quotes brewing in there. What were some quotes that really stick out to you as you watch this movie? Uh, in two different parts of the movie, one shortly after the quote that uh, Miles was just talking about, and it's taken from the Harrison Ford narration, which I don't mind very much. But the great quote, probably one of his last lines in the theatrical release version of the film, when Harrison Ford is talking about how Rachel did not have an expiration date and you know nobody knows how long she is going to be able to live and he touches on how nobody really knows how long any of us are going to live as they sail off into the sunset to live happily ever after however long that might be i guess you're through huh finished exact quote but that's the gist of it but also one that just i always remembered and even my friends from when we saw it back in the theater way back in the day was uh, that midpoint in the film where rachel or right before <coughs> rachel takes out uh, leon leon the android is fighting with deckard and deckard's like getting the worst of it for a right. while but then uh, leon kind of picks him up by the neck and says wake up it's time to die I don't know why that one just sticks with me. Yeah. And then shortly after, he, he gets shot himself. It is time right. to die. <laughs> it is time. Yeah. Uh, any other quotes, Wayne? Those are the two main quotes that jump yeah. out at me. Uh, some movies we do have extremely philosophical quotes, and there certainly is that in this movie, but it's... there's, there's a, it's, to narrow them down. Yeah, it's... Um, yeah, a little bit more than that. Um. Well, anything else regarding? We didn't really talk about any of the acting. Uh, with any 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 favorite scenes, any acting moments that kind of stood stood out to you, or anything else about the movie before we go into some trivia and then maybe hit some listener feedback. 
There was one more quote I, I had that I thought was rather poignant. Uh, this is when Terrell's talking to Roy. Uh, the light that burns twice as bright burns for half as long. You have burned so very brightly, Roy. Look at you. You're, you're the prodigal son. You're quite a prize. So it's just what, whatever you think of Roy, whatever his motives are, Roy wants to live. And he, he's going great lengths to try to um, extend his, his life and his, fr- and his fellow replicants' lives. And um, I, th- I thought that was um, Roy's. In, he's not just a two-dimensional bad guy. I mean, there is there is some depth to him, and you know, even so, that he saves Harrison Ford's life at the end. Mm-hmm. So, um, which which was an interesting twist. I mean, he wasn't. Uh, he he could have easily killed Harrison Ford's character, but in the end, he ends up saving him just before his time is up. Quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? That's what it is to be a slave. watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten hours a gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears. You know, I like that, you know, um, you know, it makes you think as you walk your way through the movie, um, it may, it's easy to look at the sides in this movie and say, well, you know, 
we're, we're, we're all we're going for Harrison Ford's character because he's the good guy, and the replicants are all bad guys, right? Uh, but these are guys that are really just trying to extend their life. They, mm-hmm. they, they, they want to live. They aren't. It isn't so much. They're, they're bad because they're not. They're not conforming. They're not being constrained by or don't want to constrain to what society has developed them to be. Right. And they want to go beyond, you know, the boundaries of society. In, in, in a very much, in a very big way, this becomes a metaphor for any time, you know, people don't necessarily want to live within the boundaries of societies think they should. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and how we, you know, either heckle them into being conforming or, or, you know, kind of, we, we, we don't, thankfully, at least not yet, uh, go around shooting people that don't conform to the way we think they should. But, but we certainly have ways of keeping them in line. Yes. Yeah. And maybe that goes into a whole depth of the movie that we didn't, we didn't hit on yet. But I think there is a, there is a feel for that. It's, and again, the replicants, uh, do they do some terrible things? Yeah. But, mm-hmm. it's, but and on one hand, if you know that your expiration date's up and you're desperate to try and find a cure to extend it, you know, what, you know, it's kind of that question, what would you do for a million dollars? Well, what would you do to live for a, another, another four years? Well, you brought up a good point in that this is another, you know, maybe this is another moral, uh, moral thing we're, we're, we're looking at is, um, is you know when is it right to fight against what's you know whatever 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 society imposes upon you this is your this is your role in society and you know you just need to smile and go along with it and and if you dare to be more than that um um you know i mean that's what we see in the replicants case we'll probably see that in you know throughout our world though too right right uh, Wayne, any thoughts on this? On the moral issues, there's also a moral issue that they're kind of glossing over. I can look over because it, it is just a movie. But what of the moral issue about running off to live happily ever after with an android woman? <laughs> so robotic love is what you're saying. It's something just may not work out. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, there, 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 there is that. There is that. Um uh, Jim, any thoughts on this uh, this discussion? Okay, that I'd have to throw in with Wayne that the the issue of running off with a replicant w- would be quite disturbing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no doubt. Did you have something you want to say? Um, I would agree with that, though. Yeah, that's well, that's another thing. I mean, uh, are, are replicants human human beings? I mean, she's. <coughs> I mean, I assume they grow them out of human DNA. So, um, she if she doesn't have a pr- expiration date, and they legitimately fall in love. I mean, um, you know, you, 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 let's take this to uh, another level. If we're talking about this being a moral issue, uh, think about um, people's online personas and how they paint themselves, and how uh, how people. Um, especially I think in sometimes the gaming world, uh, but even beyond that, we create an on-time pers- online persona that may or may not represent the trueness of who we are. And, and uh, people who fall in love, whether it be 
you know, vis-a-vis, you know, the, you know, you know, romantic love or are just infatuated with the ideal of this person rather than the reality of this person. And you become, it kind of plays into a little bit with Wayne, you know, do we, do we run off metaphorically into the sunset with the, with the, with the ideal and not the reality? Mm Mm-hmm. That's deep. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> we gotta stop that. No. Go ahead, J- Jim. That's kind of funny. Yeah, that's kind of funny because, uh, for instance, Scott, Miles, and Wayne. Okay, I've met any of you guys other than on Facebook, Twitter, and by listening to the podcast and so forth. I consider you guys very good friends. Yeah. Right. But we've never met. So. I, yeah, I can see the point. Yeah, we know, and, and is that, and you know, just because we've never met, does that make this friendship any less valued? Uh, in what's not in my mind necessarily, but it's certainly a different type of friendship than you know me sitting across the, you know, looking staring staring miles across from me as we record this podcast. It's very different the relationship than what I have with, um, you know, with Wayne, Wayne, you Wayne or Jim, but. Wayne, do you want to weigh in on this? No, I, I agree with you guys, and you say it a lot better than I could. <laughs> All right. Um, I, we didn't talk about this, but let's maybe mention it. Any acting performances in particular, to bring this back to ground and not so philosophical, <laughs> any acting performances that kind of stood out to you in this film? I thought, looking back, that Sean Young did a superb job playing Rachel in the film. I had forgotten that she, she is a really good actress. And when I first saw it, I mostly focused on Harrison Ford because of star Wars and the empire strikes back. And this of course is totally different acting for him. And I applaud him for what he did in the film as well. Yeah, I think you're right, Wayne. She, uh, she really had played somebody very emotionless. Hmm. I mean, in this movie, she kind of had to almost be robotic in some ways, and this is not this is a departure from what she she's done in the past. So, um, uh, so yeah, this was yeah. You're right. She did she did she did a good job in this. No, I would agree with that. Um, you know, I, I, part of me wants to say that I was impressed by by Edward James almost in this movie, but I'm going to be honest, he just creeped me out through the whole movie. <laughs> so you know, I, and I like Gaff, but he's just he's just a bit. You know, I look at him and. You know, I love him as a Dama in Battlestar Galactica, but but he just creeped me out. He just and and maybe that's a testament to how well he acted it. Um, but you know, I just didn't quite trust him. <laughs> maybe it was the pimp outfit he had on. But <laughs> yeah, and the cane. And how, how about the awesome acting by Rutger Hauer playing Roy Batty? Oh yeah, that that's that that's true. I mean, he was. I mean. You know he's the antagonist in this movie, but at the same time, you could you could definitely sympathize with him. Yeah, absolutely. And and he re, he redeems himself at the end. He saves Harrison Ford's life. Yeah, Jim. How about for you? Uh, any acting performances kind of stick out for you? Well, uh, again, Rachel's character, Sean, or yeah, Rachel, uh, Sean Young's <coughs> character, Channel Joan Crawford's. To a T. It was it, it was incredible. I I really enjoyed that. Harrison Ford could have been Humphrey Bogart as far as I was concerned. It, it was really really great. Uh, Edward James almost he creeped me out too. Uh, was it was he speaking Chinese? 
I, I don't I don't remember if that's what he did. That's the language he was trying to speak or not. Um, I just thought it was well acted all the way around. Yeah, yeah. This seemed kind of out of place for him, but the guy played J.F. Sebastian, um, uh, William Sanderson. Um, I remember him from New Heart. He was um, he was Larry, and he had his his brother Daryl and his other brother Daryl. <laughs> Um, right. This was before New Heart. Mm-hmm. So it just, you know, that's why I was like, you know, that's Larry. You know, I, I <laughs> just seemed a little out of place, you know. Especially coming back in that perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, why don't we move? Uh, why don't we move into a little bit of trivia here and get some listener feedback? Um, uh, a bit of trivia for you guys, and see if you know this. Uh, and Miles, you're looking at the show notes. So I am not. So okay. I, have, I have not seen the trivia. Okay, very good. Um, so. <clears throat> While the film is loosely based on Phil K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the title comes from what? Do any of you folks know? The title Blade Runner? Yes. I am not positive. They kind of alluded to it in the film that that's just what they call the people that hunt down and kill androids. Yeah, but I don't know any deeper than that. Yeah, uh, Jim, any ideas? No, I'm I'm lost. I'm okay, not. this comes from an Alan Norse book called The Blade Runner, and um, Williams S. Burroughs wrote a screenplay based on the Norse book and a novella entitled Blade Runner, a movie. Really, Scott bought the rights to the title of the screenplay, but of uh, the title, but not the screenplay or the book. The Burroughs composition defines a Blade Runner as a person who sells illegal surgical instruments. So, but that's where the title came from. So interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, he also, Ridley Scott also considered uh, other titles for the film, including Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, Android, uh, Mechanismo, uh, Dangerous Days, and finally Blade Runner. After the film had changed his name from Dangerous Days to Blade Runner, Ridley Scott decided he didn't like the new name and tried to call the film Gotham City. But Bob Kane, comic book creator of Batman, wouldn't sell the rights to the name, so it returned to being called Blade Runner. I'm glad he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, but that brings a question, especially for uh, Jim and, and Wayne, since you guys read the book. Uh, should the film have been called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Or would that have just confused since there's no sheep in it? I, I don't think Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep would have worked for the film, even if it was filmed as the book. Uh, Dangerous Days kind of has a better modern ring to it. Yeah, all right. Uh, so is that. Um, and um, here's the other thing. Although Philip K. Dix only saw the opening 20 minutes of the footage prior to his death on March 2nd, 1982, he was extremely impressed and has been quoted by Paul Salmon saying, it was my own interior world. They caught it perfectly. Uh, however, neither Ridley Scott nor screenwriter David Webb Peoples actually read Dick's novel, as we kind of alluded to before. So at least he got to see it before he died, or at least part of it. Hmm. Yeah. The, when Deckard plays uh, the note on the grand piano... The note he plays is not the note we actually hear. That figures. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jim, what is did, it? Did, um, I don't have it here. I do have another one. I guess when uh, when Rochelle is playing, the key she presses don't match the music we hear. 
The piano sound is in C major, but the picture shows are pressing one of the black keys. I didn't know if you caught that, Jim, or not, being the music doctor you are. Uh, you know, that one got by me. I don't have perfect pitch, so <laughs> I will yeah. hear that one. No. Um, let me see here. Uh, that's just some other stuff that I, I won't read here. Um, Jim, we had we had talked earlier prior to the show starting that one of the things that had that had come up, and maybe it's important to bring this here since we're kind of wrapping up our discussion of Blade Runner, was a letter that Philip K. Dick gave to science fiction kind of being dead up to this story or up to this movie. Do you want to, do you have that letter handy to read for us? I do. Um, and, and I can't take credit for finding this. I got to give credit to Wayne. He found it about uh, two weeks ago. And, and this letter is dated October 11th, 1981. It's to Mr. Jeff Walker of the lad company. Dear Jeff, I happened to see the Channel 7 program, Hooray for Hollywood, tonight with a segment on Blade Runner. Well, to be honest, I didn't happen to see it. Someone tipped me off that Blade Runner was going to be a part of the show and to be sure to watch. Jeff, after looking and especially after listening to Harrison Ford discuss the film, I came to the conclusion that this indeed is not science fiction. It is not fantasy. It is exactly what Harrison said, futurism. The impact of Blade Runner is simply going to be overwhelming, both on the public and on creative people, and I believe on science fiction as a field. Since I have been writing and selling science fiction works for 30 years, this is a matter of some importance to me. In all candor, I must say that our field has gradually and steadily been deteriorating for the last few years. Nothing that we have done individually or collectively matches Blade Runner. This is not escapism, it is super-realism. So gritty and detailed and authentic and goddamn convincing that, well, after the segment I found my normal present-day reality pallid by comparison. What I am saying is that all of you collectively may have created a unique form of graphic, artistic expression never before seen, and I think Blade Runner is going to revolutionize our conceptions of what science fiction is and more can be. Let me sum it up this way. Science fiction has slowly and inductibly settled into a monotonous death. It has become inbred, derivative, stale. Suddenly you people have come in, some of the greatest talents currently in existence, and now we have a new life. A new start. As for my own role in the Blade Runner project, I can only say that I did not know a work of mine or a set of ideas of mine could be escalated into such stunning dimensions. My life and creative work are justified and completed by Blade Runner. Thank you. And it is going to be one hell of a commercial success. It will prove invincible. Cordially, Philip K. Dick. So, uh, you know, this movie was going to revolutionize the way science fiction's done. He seems to allude to that statement in there. Um, uh, what do you think of this letter, Miles? Well, in some, in some ways, I, I think he's right. I mean, the, 
there's been more movies, I mean, that depict the future, maybe not in a clean and um, optimistic way. I mean, some have kind of went um, in the kind of look of Blade Runner <clears throat> as far as the noir style or I don't want to say it's dystopian, but it sort of has a little kind of dystopian feel to it. I mean, they're encouraging people to like leave Earth and live on the on the outer worlds or whatever, because maybe because well, if if there's no if there, if all the animals are dying off of Earth, then yeah, there's there's definitely a dystopian feel to it. So yeah, that there's definitely that. Um. So, so as far as the the look goes, yeah, I would, I would say Blade Runner definitely influenced other movie genres. Or mo- other movies with 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 it, yeah. Uh, Wayne, how about you? What, what's your take about what Phil K. Dick is saying here? I think, in essence, he's spot on. In in a way, it's it is invincible, even though it wasn't, you know, a huge commercial success when it first came out. But look at us today, this many years later, with five DVD box sets of discs and bonus features and. And I still think that even after 30 years, the scenes in the film that are downtown are still as unique as when Blade Runner first came out. You know, the, it's all dark and dingy and it's neon filled with all these weird city dwellers. <coughs> and it influenced a ton of movies, including Fifth Element that you're going to be rewinding next. Uh, the uh, the new Total Recall movie, that, that remake that came out odes a bit to the look and feel of this and even the matrix how everything's dark and it seems to be raining almost all the time just calls back to to blade runner and its influence and then of course the matrix went on to influence a lot of other films after it so i think in a way it is invincible right you know at the same time you might look at it and say well phil cave dick obviously tooting his own horn here because <laughs> he's you know he's going to say this about his work because of what it is but it, you're right wayne it does certainly uh it certainly does uh hold up and seems to certainly be a, a piece that is held back to as being a an, an iconic film and maybe not maybe not groundbreaking as far as effects or even sound goes but maybe just in the way the storytelling uh, it goes and the influences had on the industry from that end of things. Uh, Jim, how about for you? Uh, how does uh, how do you feel about what Phil K. Dick's saying here? What I read into this is he's quite impressed with what what they've done with his work. Um, you know, I would have expected him to be upset that they had taken so much out of his story, but obviously he seems to be uh, very happy with the way they preserve the essence of what his story is, uh, put it on the screen, uh, chose the right talent as far as he's concerned to, to act the parts. And uh, I, I just think that, that um, he felt that uh, Blade Runner breathed new life into him. I think that's probably, that's the way, that's what I'm hearing as I kind of uh, go through that. But, um, well, thanks, Jim, for reading that. And, uh, well, let's move into some listener feedback, unless there's anything else. Any other trivia or anything else that you guys know that you wanted to share? No, I'm good. It's something that – oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go, go ahead, Wayne. Wayne. Oh, I was just thinking, you know, Ridley Scott, and he's definitely got the hot hand and the vision. And just like he recently added something new to the Alien canon with his Prometheus movie, um, Ridley Scott's making his own remake of Blade Runner. 
Yes. Uh, we'll see how that so comes this is out. It's going to be very interesting. Yeah. You know, maybe he'll actually read the book prior to doing this remake. I don't know. Probably not. I, I can only hope that would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did get some listener feedback regarding Blade Runner. And this comes courtesy, as Wayne, you know, you know, Rick from Wisconsin. This comes courtesy of of Rick from Wisconsin and are some of his thoughts on the Blade Runner movies. So let me go ahead and play this clip. Not that clip. Let me play this clip. Hey, Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. This is Rick from Wisconsin calling with feedback about Blade Runner. Uh, having saw it in the theater originally, and I know that when it was on cable, I watched it at least one other time, maybe a couple. I hadn't seen it, I'm sure, in at least a decade and decided to get the final cut version from the library before hearing your podcast. Um, I remember probably why I haven't watched it over again too many times is because it seems very slow moving to me. Uh, the story is an interesting concept and idea. If we ever got technologically advanced enough to build artificial people uh, how much would they be like us? Would they think? Um, if you believe that people have souls, you would say they don't have a soul. So maybe uh, killing one of them may not count as murder, if you think of it in that sense. But um, the you know, movie's a good movie. It's visually really stunning. Um, I'm thinking especially for the time it was made, it was a pretty good uh, vision of the future and how it may look. And I really did enjoy seeing a few of the actors that were in it. Uh, Rutger Hauer was one of my favorites at that time uh, in a number of different things. And I liked Brian James. Brian James popped up in a lot of sci-fi and I uh, wish he was still around. Uh, remember, he was in Enemy Mine, and uh, he was in a number of different things over the years. He was kind of a, a cool guy to me. I think the first movie I saw him in was not a sci-fi movie. I believe it was a movie called Southern Comfort. And uh, if you've never seen that, it's a fairly entertaining movie. But anyway, um, I think Blade Runner helped maybe the sci-fi genre at the time because it had a couple big names and it made money. Uh, I think maybe that helped other films to get made. But um, it's just not... just. I guess it's not one of my favorite kind of movies. So um, look forward to hearing your discussion of it and see if anything I hear changes my mind. Thanks. Well, uh, Rick, thanks for calling in. We hope we can certainly change your mind. He mentions that it's a slow movie. Mm -hmm. And when you look at it through the lens of modern cinema, there's no doubt he's right. Oh, yeah. And I I think that that may be one way this movie doesn't hold up today is because of the pacing. Absolutely. I think this modern audience... The, the, the Gen Xers would, would turn it off because it's just not moving fast enough. Yeah. We live in a time where attention spans are just 
not very long. So yeah, visually stunning. He said he likes that. He likes some of the acting performances, mm-hmm. and I would agree with that. And it does bring up the ethics that if we're able to create people like this, will they have a soul? Mm-hmm. You know? well, yes, it, it asks a lot of interesting questions. Um, to me, it asks the question of you know you can make your own slave labor force. Uh, oh yeah, with with this is is that ethical? Well, we know that this is the direct result of the Cylons because the Cylons were slave labor force initially. Uh, right, right, right. Right. Mm-hmm. So here we are creating Cylons again. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And Blade Runner, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's move into some other listener feedback that we got regarding Blade Runner. Uh, Sammy from Texas uh, wrote in a little note to us about uh, this movie and how it's kind of influenced his life. Uh, Miles, do you want to read this? Sure. Hi, guys. Love your podcast. I was lucky enough to uh, have a mom that loves sci-fi, so we went to the movies all the time. I remember coming out of the movie and saying to my mom, the future looks dark. I mean, that's how the real the look and feel of Blade Runner was to me. From that moment on, all sci-fi has to had to live up to this film. One of my favorite things about this film is the location of uh, J.F. Sebastian's home. It's the same building from the classic and best Outer Limits, Demon with a Glass Hand. So do I think uh, Deckard was a replicant? I'm not sure. It, it does not really matter to me either way. Sammy from Texas. Yeah. I guess it was one of the questions we had posed on, uh, on Facebook. Um, let me see what else here. I have another one. Uh, this is from Raul Ibarra. Uh, Ibarra that said, the theatrical release of Hollywood's ending uh, and the voiceover and chopping down of some of the seams harmed its success, in my opinion. However, the director's cut, which is what should, emphasis on should, have been released to theaters, gives us one of the top sci-fi films of all time. It had grit, science, and made you think. Mm-hmm. And it certainly, uh, it certainly did all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so Raul, of course, being a great contributor to our uh, the Fringe Casting Podcast as well, Wayne, that you were doing. So uh, here's what people had to say on Facebook uh, regarding their um, uh, the way this movie kind of impacted them. I kind of threw out the question, how did the classic movie Blade Runner impact you? What did you think of it? Uh, let us know. And Brent uh, Ormey said, it led to my wife's discovery that Harrison Ford wasn't just an old guy who plays presidents. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that that was... True. Um, <clears throat> we also had the similar talk with Star Wars and then followed by Indiana Jones as well. Um, uh, Candace, uh, Candace Cabana said, all done right. Uh, uh, AI done right. Stanley Kubrick and Steven Spielberg should have taken notes on that. So she loved the AI in this one. And uh, I mentioned the Raul um, Link already, so. So those are just some other comments that people had to uh, say regarding Blade Runner. But, but all in all, a, a good movie. A good oh, movie. Yeah. Definitely a good movie and definitely worthy of it. Yeah, it's in, yeah, okay. Thanks for clarifying. It was a great movie. It really is. It really is. Uh, Wayne, I guess I should ask, where does this rate as far as uh, all-time favorite movies for you? I would put it in, in my top five. Top five? Because there's so much behind it and so much in it and all the different versions and the trivia. And now with the uh, remake or sequel, whatever it is Ridley Scott has in mind, it's just another added piece of nugget for me to study and try to absorb. Right, right. Uh, Jim, how about for you as we uh, wrap up the show here, where would you place this as far as being one of the year uh, um, movies, as far as favorite movies of all time? 
Oh, it's definitely moved up. I, I would I would have to say it in probably the top. Uh, it, it's it's definitely better than than I at first thought it was. Right. <laughs> I don't know if it would make my top five, but it would definitely be be within my top twenty movies. I would tell you. So. And how about a few miles? Yeah, I, I I would not put this in my top five. I mean, I did enjoy it, but, but um, yeah, I'd say top twenty probably. It, it, it would be in there. Um, it depends how I classify it. Is it is it one of my top twenty treadmill movies? Uh, probably not. <laughs> right. <laughs> not, not enough. Not enough action to keep my legs moving in this one. Um, but as far as we're talking about intellectual movies that make you think, I mean, why am I going to the movies? Uh, if I'm going there to be think uh, to, to think and be challenged, then it probably isn't my top one of my top five or pretty close to being my top five. But if I'm looking at it in pure entertainment value and you know wanting something mindless to tune out to after a long day, this isn't the type of movie you do that with. I mean, you this is a movie that demands your attention that it really asks you to kind of engage into, and so it's uh, and th- that's an important part of, of some of these movies. Right, you gotta turn your brain up to ten when you're watching this. Yeah, um, it's because I mean, if if the slope, if if the pacing's too slow for you, you're, you're gonna miss some stuff. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, before we go here, let's uh, give people a chance just to uh, plug their stuff. Jim, let's start with you. Rumor has it you are a blogging man. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your blog and where people can go to find you? Uh, yeah. Uh, my blog, Jim's Sci-Fi, that's all one word, J-I-M-S-S-E-I-F-I, at or dot blogspot.com. And I just ramble about things that I enjoy, books that I have read, television shows that I'm watching, uh, my thoughts on things. I don't purport to be an expert of any kind. Uh, I just miss writing from college and, and I wanted to write, so I started a blog. Oh, very good. And uh, Jim, we look, good. Yeah, we, we look forward to that blog because there's a lot of uh, a lot of the insights that you share in the comments and the feedback you send to us. I'll make it on there, but even beyond that, you get some, uh, uh, some real deep thoughts about the stuff that you're engaging on with sci-fi, and we need we need deep thinkers in the sci-fi community. So you definitely pre- contribute there. Yeah, we definitely appreciate that. <coughs> um, Wayne, how about you? Uh, tell us uh, where can people find out what is going on in Wayne's world? <laughs> Party on, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Check out MediaVoiceOvers.com. That's where I not only have the site for the voiceovers that I can hire out to people, but also all of my podcasts, uh, the Lost Casting Podcast. We just put out a special edition looking back at Lost's influence, but we also finally wrapped up Fringe Casting since Fringe has now ended. We had a big series finale over there, and I'm going to be rebooting the VoiceOver Journey Podcast with a new format and I've got uh, some guests lined up, so stay tuned. And I've got my mind spinning, thinking of a new podcast. Ooh. So tune into the uh, website to find out more details on that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, uh, we are Scott and Miles mm-hmm. uh, from the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. You can find uh, more information about us at the Sci-Fi Diner podcast.com and uh, find out all – the other ways you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and everything else. 
Um, guys, thank you so much for joining us in this Blade Runner Rewind. Uh, you definitely brought in something that uh, you, you helped flesh out uh, this rewind for us a little bit better than Miles and I could have done it on our own. That's for sure. Yeah. So, so thank you, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you, Wayne. Thank you very much for having me on. I've been waiting for this, and you guys did not disappoint. This was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, well, it was a good. It was a good trip down memory lane as you kind of look back at this movie and we talk about, you know, where does it fit into society as its importance? And so, uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a movie that I think I, I like to think that the movies we do on here are not just trivial ones, but they have an impact beyond just. The fact that they're an entertaining movie, but that they have some relevance beyond that. And I think if any movie has a cultural relevance and an importance to the sci-fi society, it's Blade Runner. So, all right. Well, thank you so much. Um, I believe that's it. Let's uh, go ahead and wrap up the show. All right. Till next time, good night and good luck. We will see ya. See I watched scenes glittering up ten hours again. All those moments will be lost in time. 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 Time.